I'm all fired up. The adrenaline's going. Need some water for the voice. Can I, can I pray? Father in heaven, I just need your help to calm down. Holy Spirit, come and just center, center this moment, this time on you. Use these words to advance all of us forward into your kingdom. Holy Spirit, come and rain down in this place now. Your power and your presence in a fresh and new way. We are hungry for you, Lord, in this broken and hurting world. We are desperate to hear from you fresh words of life. Your words are life and full of life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. My first slide. It's a doozy. You ready for it? You're not ready for it. I promise you. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist. You may have heard of him. He wrote the book, in this sentence, in the book, The God Delusion. Two things. One, this makes me really sad this quote. Second, it's a lie. It's a lie. It is a lie that is destroying lives. This is a popular worldwide perspective among atheists. He loves Richard himself, loves to point to Christians and say, how can you point to the Bible as a moral code? Your God is a moral monster. Next slide. It's better, I promise. (laughs) This is from Dr. Greg Boyd. Now, I've been reading this book called Cross Vision. It's been inspiring a lot of what I want to talk about today. One thing about Greg is he's a bit of a controversial theologian. I'm not endorsing everything he teaches, but I will say this book has been really just inspiring me and just exciting me in a lot of ways. And the things I want to point out today, I don't think are controversial at all, but but, but I love the way he thinks, even if sometimes he gets a little bit dangerous with his theology. So, but this, I love this verse here. This, this verse, this, uh, this quote. <laughs> quote. It's possible, it's impossible, it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of a believer's mental representation of God. 
For the way you imagine God largely determines the quality of your relationship with God. The intensity of your love for God will never outrun the beauty of the God you envision. Does that make sense? Richard doesn't see any beauty in God. Therefore, his relationship with God is zero. But for us, followers of Christ, we see so much beauty in God. But there are times when, whether in reading scripture or in our lives ourselves, we see things where we're wondering about the beauty of God. We start to maybe question God's character a little bit. We don't, something doesn't make sense in a scripture. And we're like, how does this lead to a loving, peaceful God? And sometimes we can see how people like Richard Dawkins can come to perspectives like that because there are difficult passages in scripture, aren't there? In fact, this morning I want to call them ugly, ugly passages of scripture. We see it in the Old Testament. There are narratives and stories and laws that are ugly when you look at them at face value. And you, you read through the Old Testament, I think it's interesting, we, we teach our kids to read the Bible, yes, but there are a lot of things in there, pitfalls, dangerous, or not dangerous, but dangerous, yes. There are, there are challenging parts of that text that make us go, whoa, what is going on here? But not just the Old Testament, the New Testament. I mean, look, this is an execution tool. The, the cross is a tool to execute humans. It is ugly. Communion, the Eucharist, the table, the bread and the cup, at its face value, if you like, just saw people like drinking blood and eating flesh, how offensive. It sounds cannibalistic. No wonder so many disciples left Jesus when he started to talk about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. Like that just is like, it's ugly. If, if you saw someone on a cross from a distance, you didn't know who they were. And they, let's say they saw Jesus. Let's say someone saw Jesus on the cross with the thieves, didn't know Jesus at all. You'd say, what an ugly sight. But we know, we know that there is beauty in the cross. We know that there's beauty in the Eucharist. It is the most beautiful thing, right? There is something behind what's going on there. There's something that's going on behind the bread and the cup. It is our hope. It is our salvation. It is beautiful. And so, one of the principles in reading the text and reading the Bible and studying God and theology is that we look for the beauty in the ugly. And we trust that there is beauty in the ugly. We trust that, that if we were to do the work and study, we would find beauty behind these scenes because we see it all the time. We see it in the cross. We see it in the Eucharist. But I want to go farther. I want to go farther. I want to ask this question. What is God like? What is God like? I want, to, I want to present to you a principle that I think will serve you very, very well as you encounter ugly things. As someone comes up to you, maybe someone who's a follower of Richard Dawkins, comes up to you and challenges with you and says, how can you believe your God is moral and good when this, this, and this ugly thing happens? Or this text or that text. 
I want to give you a principle that you can stand on. I want to ground you in a principle that you can start from. Because I don't know about you, but when I get challenged, I don't know what to do sometimes. I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know how to interpret that text. Start here. So, let me show you this passage here. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. Next verse, please. For the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son is the image of the eternal God. Colossians 1, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything we, he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Are you getting the picture? When we think about who God is and what God is like, God is like Jesus. God's character is like Jesus. We can have the conviction, we can be grounded in this, that God is like Jesus. Jesus is the the perfect, the exact representation of God, the fullness of God dwelled through Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, Jesus. That serves you well. In fact, Jesus, look at this, this is this verse here. Um, Jesus is talking to Philip, he says this in John. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus responds by saying this, have I been with you all this time, Philip, you knucklehead, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, Jesus is making a point here, period. Whoever, if you want to see the Father? Here it is. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I know growing up in my, as a Christian, there was like the Father and Jesus, and they were, yeah, two different distinct people. Yes, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, distinct people, three in one. Yes. But if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. The character of Jesus is the same as the character of the Father. There isn't like this shadow God going on. There isn't like this, this God behind the scenes who is not so pure, not so peaceful. There, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Furthermore, next slide. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. We know love by this. The cross. The cross. The cross equals love. It's not just an ugly execution stake. Behind this is ultimate love. The picture of God is Jesus on the cross, humbling himself as a servant and going straight to the cross. Look at this, this next verse. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus came down, stooped down to hang on a cross as a curse for us. What is God like? God is like Jesus stooping down and hanging on a cross for us. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want to ask you a question. What is Jesus like? Just shout it out. Give me some words. What's Jesus like? Holy. Holy. Compassionate. Compassionate. Loving. Loving. Faithful. Faithful. Ah. Healer. Healer. Just. Just. True. True. Mighty. Mighty. Righteous. Mm. Honest. Honest. Servant. Holy, sovereign, God. Got any more? Promise keeper. Fighter for the oppressed. Merciful. Salvation. Friend of sinners, humble. King. Miracle worker. Creator. Friend. Sorry, I got cotton mouth. <clears throat> this is great. Any more? Love. Love. Forgiving. Forgiving. Wise. Wise. Discerning. Discerning. Filled with grace. Say again. Filled with grace. Filled with grace. Peace. Peace. Loyal, compassionate, omnipresent, leader, sorry, slow to anger, sorry, say it one more time, merciful, amen, tender, strong, disciplined, Fearless, humble, humble. meek, meek. Servant. servant, light in the darkness, in the darkness. kind, kind. Yeah. beginning of the end, eternal, eternal. The, lamb the lamb who was slain. Human. <laughs> Roaring, lion. Roaring lion. Redeemer. Redeemer. Shepherd. Shepherd. Restorer, Rest- of Restorer of all things. Obedient. Creator. Obedient. Obedient. Good. Good. Rest. Not ugly. Not ugly. <laughs> Not ugly. Let's, 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 last, let's end there.
This is the point of the whole sermon. If you, don't, if you miss the rest of it, that's fine, because this is the point. Ground yourself in that God looks like Jesus. What is God like? Jesus. And everything, every adjective that was described. What is God like? God is like Jesus, who stoops into the ugliness. You okay with that? Who stoops into the ugliness to do what? To show us his beauty. All right. Got the point? Let's apply it. You ready? I'm going to disappoint you because there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament we could apply this to and try this against. Um, I'm not going to call, cover all of them. My hope is, my prayer is, this gets you going, and you're like, okay, I got some challenging texts. I got some challenging things. I'm going to go see Jesus in these texts. I'm going to go find Jesus in these texts. These are, it's hard. There are texts that I'm still wrestling with. But here we go. You ready? So, Genesis 1 through 11. Just want to set, you set the stage here. The world falls apart. Everything's broken. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Cain and Abel, bad parenting or something's going on there. The flood, Tower of Babel. What a mess. Now, in that time, chapter 12, now we're in chapter, okay, chapter 12 through 50, this is where God comes in and he's showing how he's going to fix it. How he's going to come in and like restore and he, he, he shows a lot through 12 to 50. Way more we're going to cover today, okay? So I just want to show a glimpse at the beginning. So chapter 12, we meet. Who do we meet in chapter 12? Anyone know? Abraham. Abraham. Love it. Now, before we get into the text, I want to just set the ground a little bit from a cultural perspective. At the time of Abraham, he was swimming in a soup of pagan gods. For example, look at this list. There's all these pagan gods going. You got El. He's the supreme god, father of gods and men. Depicted as a wise, benevolent figure. Baal, storm and fertility god, represented by thunderstorms, rain, agricultural abundance. I love this. It's like you hear thunder, you're like, there's Baal. Or Baal, if you're Midwestern. (laughs) Asherah, mother goddess, often linked as the consort of El. So they're like, they're tight, El and... And Anu, Anu or Anu? Anu, sky god and god of the heavens, the highest in the Mesopotamian pantheon. Next slide. Next slide. Enlil, Enlil. It's like a rapper to me. God of air, wind and storms, a key figure in the creation order in the universe. Marduk, chief deity and patron god of Babylon, associated with creation, judgment, depicted as a warrior god. Ra, sun god, uh, often depicted as a falcon head and a sun disc. I don't know what a, well, sun disc, yeah. Considered the most important Egyptian god. Osiris, god of the afterlife, resurrection of vegetation. He and Egyptian myth regarding the afterlife. This is going on all around Abraham at the time of Abraham. Now, the religions of Abraham's time were polytheistic, right? And multiple gods and goddesses typically overseeing different aspects of nature. They're often like nature-based it's like if I, if I want my crops to grow, I need to give sacrifices to this God. Or if I want to have a family, I need to give sacrifices to this God. Now, next slide. Pagan, pa- pagan, pagan, pagan religions often focus more on ritual practices. So like appeasing the gods to make sure you could get more of a crop or more kids, right? You 
sacrifice more to show your devotion to the God. Appeasement of the gods for favors, maintain the favor of the gods through offerings and sacrifices, including nasty things, temple prostitution, child sacrifice was common, ugh, ugly. Pagan gods, many narratives, have displayed human-like qualities, including emotions, such as jealousy, love, and anger. Isn't that interesting that pagan gods had human-like characteristics? Hmm. Hmm. Pagan gods communicated through omens and oracles. So it's like, oh, you, see, you would see something in the sky. You'd see something in nature. And it's like, oh, this is what the god's saying. Or, or you see like, a, like some destruction. He, the, like nature would come and destroy something. The god must be angry. We need to sacrifice more. Now, I went on to ChatGPT, and I told ChatGPT, give me a picture of Abraham swimming in a soup of pagan gods. And this is what it came up with. I think it did pretty good. So Abraham is just swimming in this soup of like all these different gods, pagan gods that are all around him. Now, Abraham doesn't have the Bible, right? He doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't have, he doesn't have Psalms. There's no David. There's no Proverbs. There's no Exodus. Hasn't happened yet. What does Abraham have? Probably some of the oral traditions, right? There were stories being told, passed around. That was a common way. There may have been some writings, but it was very sketchy, very, very sketchy. Probably not very early in language and writing. So Abraham, we're not really sure exactly what his picture of Yahweh was. So what's amazing is that God here is showing Abraham what he's like. And there's lots of ways that we can go about this. I just have a couple ways I want to show. So the first thing is this. In chapter 12, God tells Abram, leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and those who curse you. I'll curse and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So this doesn't happen with pagan gods. Pagan gods don't come down and start talking to you and give you direction, right? Let alone even care about you so much. All you worry about is like, I don't want my crops destroyed. I want to have my family. I got to keep them happy. And they're kind of, they, they kind of temper tantrums. They just like do things and you have to kind of guess what's going on. Maybe this God must be angry with me. But here, God comes down and talks to Abraham and gives him a promise, now, we could go on and on with the promise. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to continue to move forward here. What I want to do is I want to fast forward to an ugly scene, okay? And I want to try to show some beauty in an ugly scene. This ugly scene is in Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps you've heard the term fire and brimstone. It says that God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. What an ugly scene. It's one that the, the Richard Dawkins likes, loves to point to a lot. But... Look at the chapter prior to all this happening, and there's something you can see that I find beautiful. It's not, is it fully, does it fully satisfy me as a Westerner? No, but there's something going on here that we, that's kind of between the lines or behind the scenes that I want to show you. So let's go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. God continued. He, sees that, he says this, the cries of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening. The sin of those cities is immense. I'm going down to see it for myself and see if what they're doing is as bad as it sounds, and then I'll know. 
So the men set out for Sodom, but Abraham stood in God's path. Stop here. So Abraham stops in God's path, stops God in his path. Wow. I mean, this is not something you would do with a pagan God. A pagan God you still mess with. He's confronting this God. So next, next slide. Abraham confronts God. Are you serious? Are you planning on getting rid of the good people right along with the bad? What if there are 50 decent people left in the city? Will you lump the good with the bad and get rid of the lot? Wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of those 50 innocents? I can't believe you do that. Kill off the good and the bad alike as if there were no differences between them. Doesn't the judge of all the earth judge with justice? I don't know if we understand like, the, 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 the significance of that. that. Abraham is challenging God. And then God says this. God said, okay, if I find 50 decent people in the city, righteous people, in the city of Sodom, I will spare the place just for them. Whoa. Next slide. Abraham came back. He says this. Do I, a mere mortal made from a handful of dirt, dare open my mouth against my master? What if the 50 fall short of the five by five? Would you destroy the city because of those missing five? And he said, okay, I won't destroy it if there's 50, 45. <laughs> Next slide. Next slide. Abraham spoke up again. What if you only find 40? Neither will I destroy it if, there's, if, if for 40. Next slide. He said, Master, I, don't be irritated with me, but what if only 30 are found? No, I won't do it if I find 30. Next slide. He pushed on. Okay. I know I'm trying your patience, Master. Do you guys see Abraham coming down here a little bit? Uh, what about for 20? I won't destroy it for 20. Next slide. He wouldn't quit. Don't get angry, master. This is the last time. What if you only come up with 10? For the sake of only 10, I won't destroy the city. When God finished talking with Abraham, he left and Abraham went home. What's happening in this passage? What's happening in this passage is that God is showing Abraham what he is like and how he's different from any other God, how he is compassionate and merciful and he cares about human beings. Now, in the next passage, he does destroy the city. He does do that. But he pulls Lot out of it. Apparently, he couldn't find ten righteous. Perhaps Lot was the only one. Pulls this one servant Lot out of the city and then destroys the city. Now, these are, these are moments where it's like, okay, uh, I trust that, that, that culturally this was significant. But as a Westerner, it's difficult to, to understand that, right? But there's beauty here. God is showing his people in, at that time what he is like in the midst of an ugly scene. Next slide. I want to show another piece, another scene. After this, God tested Abraham. God said, Abraham! Yes, answered Abraham. I'm listening. He said this. Take your dear son, your miraculous son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the island of Morah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains that I'll point out to you. Now, next verse. Abraham confronts God and says, how could you say this, do this ugly thing and have me go sacrifice my kid? No. No. Abraham got up early in the morning and settled. Wait, what? He just went and did it? I think there's two things going on here. First of all, why wouldn't Abraham confront God and say, you want me to sacrifice my kid? 
two things happening here, I think. One, this is chapter 22. God and Abraham are growing in their relationship. There is a trust developing between God and Abraham. My wife reminded me yesterday that in Hebrews, it talks about how, how Abraham trusted that God would take care of Isaac, even if he asked him to kill him. That's how the writer of Hebrews interprets this, this passage. There's a second thing going on here. In the time of Abraham, child sacrifice was common. So it wasn't like, what? He just, okay, I'll go sacrifice my kid. That's ugly. And, the, and, and so, many look, so many look at that passage and go, what a gross thing. But there's two things when I trust and also just that was the culture. It was an ugly, ugly culture. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his servants and his son Isaac. He said, split wood for the burnt offering. He sent out for the place God had directed him. On the third day, he looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham told his two young servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going there to worship and then we'll come back to you. Next slide. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, gave it to Isaac, his son, to carry. He carried the flint and the knife, and the two of them went off together. And then Isaac asked the most obvious question. I love this. Father, yes, my son, um, well, we have flint and wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? <laughs> I love that. Next slide. Abraham said, son, God will see to it that there's a sheep for the burnt offering which is an interesting response. And then they kept walking together. They arrived at the place to which God had directed him. Abraham built an altar, he laid out the wood, and then he tied up Isaac and laid him on the wood. Oh, and Abraham reached out and took the knife to kill his son. What an ugly picture. An ugly picture that gets raked, that God just gets raked over the leaves for this, raked over the, the what am I looking for? The coals for this, this scene. Next slide. But then, just then, an angel of God called out to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, yes, I'm listening. Don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't touch him. Now, I know how fiercely you fear God. You didn't hesitate to place your son, your dear son, on the altar for me. Now, this is just so, as a Westerner, it's a very difficult thing for us to understand. But at that time, child sacrifice was a thing. I'm sorry. It just was. Next slide. Abraham looked up. He saw a ram caught in its thorn, by its thorns in the thicket. Abraham took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place God Yira. God sees to it. And that's where we get the saying, on the mountain of God, he sees to it. Next slide. And the angel of God spoke from heaven a second time to Abraham. I swear, God's sure word, that because you have gone through with this and not refused to give me your son, your dear, dear son, I'll bless you. Oh, how I'll bless you. I'll make sure that your children flourish like stars in the sky, like sand in the beaches, and your descendants will defeat their enemies. All nations on earth will find themselves blessed through your descendants because you obeyed me. God will hold to his promise. God provides a sacrifice here in this really ugly scene. God shows his character as being trustworthy. God shows that he is compassionate God shows that he will provide a way. God shows the character of Jesus in this moment, this ugly scene. 
There's more we could say about this, but I, but I, wanna, I wanna just show you a pattern here where we, as we look at these ugly scenes, look at the chapters around it, look at the verses around it, look at how you can find, try to find Jesus in the midst of it, the character of God in it. I wanna show you a, a, just a, a quote from another atheist who, said, who challenges this. He's like, the God who had promised Abraham a son now wants to destroy that son. The God who commands his people not to murder has now ordered that the father of the Jews to sacrifice his own child. They just see ugly. But we know this. Next slide. What is God like? God is like Jesus. He's the exact representation of God who humbled himself, who stooped to our level and entered into the ugliness to demonstrate his beauty. God isn't ugly. He, what he has to work with is ugly as he leads people from culture to kingdom. I, put, I asked ChatGPT to create another image for us, and it was this, the same thing. Um, I asked it to create an image of Abraham in the soup of all the pagan gods, all the lies, all the, the distortions of who God is and what the world's like, and then Yahweh saying, come this way. Come this way. This is who I am. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament. Just this pattern. Um, can I do one more? One more. So I just want to show one more, one piece. This next verse is probably one of your life verses. It's this right here. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Right? Whose life verse? There's something going on here. God is telling his people, stop sacrificing to goat demons. <laughs> so apparently, the people of God have been sacrificing to goat demons, which tells me that they're also sacrificing. They're sacrificing animals. But he's given direction to stop sacrificing to goat demons. Now, at the time, in, in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices does not come from Hebrews. It wasn't something that, that the Jewish people, it didn't originate with the Jewish people. It didn't originate with the Hebrews. It, it, it came from these pagan religions. And then the people of God like started to do it as well. They saw that they could show their devotion to God by also, by also giving sacrifices of animals. And so what's, what's interesting is that God also just then takes that in. And you can see here in Leviticus he gives them direction. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. So God starts to give direction on sacrifices. Next slide. And he also, in the Exodus, this is what you're to offer on the altar regularly every day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. So he's just, God like takes this on and starts to like, bring it in to how he wants it done. Like this is going on in the culture and he just accommodates it and then starts to shape it. But then there's a shift. Look at this shift. Next slide. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than a fat of rams. Okay, there's a shift here. First Samuel 15. Now God's saying, okay, actually, 
I know you like your sacrifices. I know you got that down. But actually, to obey is better. To heed is better. Now look at this change right here. Next slide. Stop bringing me offerings. <laughs> They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of your offerings. Your, your sacrifices. Next slide. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the bulls, in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. What I see in this picture is the beauty of God emerging through the ugliness of the Old Testament. What I see is that the beauty of God's character of really not being into this animal sacrifice thing, even though he's using it powerfully, is emerging, and God is starting to wean them off of this. Now, we know it goes even farther, because in, in Hebrews it says this. It says, for, the, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these things, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Catch this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in the New Testament it says, it didn't work anyway. It, the blood of bulls and goats did not wash you clean of your sins. Next slide. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. It's the one sacrifice of all sacrifices and ends the system. So what is God like? God is like Jesus the character of Jesus that we described, who commandeered a brutal and ugly human ritual, that is animal sacrifices, and ended it for all time by becoming the final sacrifice, the only sacrifice that perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's a story of two missionaries who went to work in a village where it was common that there was a procedure that was done to young girls and it was a horrific procedure that was done and they saw this happening within this city, this, this area and their hearts were broken by this horrific thing that was being done and they wanted so desperately, desperately as missionaries to stop this procedure but how do you stop a culture from doing a certain ritual what they did was this, this the, the approach they took. One thing they noticed is that when the ritual was done, they used medical tools that were not ideal. And it made the procedure risky and very, very painful. So what these missionaries did is they actually provided tools that would make the procedure safer and less painful. Now, if you look at that picture right there, you see that it looks like the missionaries are endorsing, if not assisting, in this horrible ritual. That's ugly. Who are these ugly people that would come as missionaries and help this culture do this ugly thing? But then over time, what happened was this, this village began to trust 
these missionaries. They, began, they gained influence in the, in the culture, gained influence among the leadership because of the, how they were contributing, helping, to, helping them to flourish, that they were able to convince this village and this city to stop doing this procedure. They took on the ugliness of the culture to bring beauty. And I think through all the Old Testament, when we look at these ugly pictures, that is what God is doing. He's stooping to our level. He's stooping into this soup. He's stooping into the mess and bringing beauty out of it. Next slide. It says this. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them they pos- you possess eternal life. And Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. All throughout the Old Testament, you see Jesus being pointed to again and again and again. Next slide. To wrap up, when we come upon a biblical passage that seems unworthy of God, we must humble ourselves before God and ask the Spirit to help us find a deeper meaning in the passage that is worthy of God, like a treasure buried in the depth of a passage. Next slide. God intentionally buries treasures beneath the ugly and unworthy surface meaning of various passages to force us to mature spiritually as we, humble, as we humbly wrestle with Scripture and become more dependent on the Spirit. So back to Greg's quote. It's impossible to exaggerate the importance of a believer's mental representation of God. For the way you imagine God largely largely determines the quality of your relationship with God. The intensity of your love for God will never outrun the beauty of the God you envision. Next slide. So what is God like? God is like Jesus who stoops into the ugliness to show us his beauty. Um, We're going to go to our last song and... Kyle picked a song called um, um, Give Me Jesus. And he was, you know, I was like, how do we connect what was shared this morning with this last song? And I found that this song, even though it's a modern version, it's an old spiritual. Like the old spiritual, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You may have all the world, but give me Jesus. There's a book by Frederick Douglass called Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. And he describes the spiritual as those simple and apparently incoherent songs with strong and long and profound accents that breathe the prayers and complaints of souls suffering the most cruel anguish. Each voice was a witness against slavery, and a prayer that God would deliver us from our chains. I often find myself in tears listening to them. What I love about this is that... Where was Mary? Sorry? Where was Mary? Where was Mary? Where is Mary? Where? I'm not sure I understand. Okay. The spiritual... Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. This picture is is people suffering in a horrible situation, ugly situation, and their prayer and their song, their spiritual, the song is, give me Jesus. 
Give me Jesus. And my encouragement to you is that we would, in all things, whether ugly, ugly texts that we struggle with or ugly parts of life, would ask and seek to see Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you that you are altogether beautiful. These, these texts are challenging. These stories are difficult as we wade through ancient culture. And Lord, I pray for those um, who may have difficulty seeing the beauty of God. That they would, they would see you in it, Lord. Help us all, God, help us all, Lord, to see you in the midst, in the midst of any ugliness we find, Lord. God, we believe and we stand firm that your character is good and that you are holy and you are righteous. And you are willing to step into even the mess, even if it makes you look messy. God, our prayer is that you would give us more of a picture of who you are and help us to share that with the world that doesn't understand who you are. We pray that you would just give us more and more of Jesus. Amen.